Andy Jenkins back at it. Hope you're having a great day, great start of the week here. You know, we release these things on Monday. And this week, I want to talk to you about this topic of waiting. Um, Waiting is something that in our culture we don't really like to do. It's something that many times we have to do. But it always tests this thing called patience. And not just patience. Many times, depending on what you're waiting for, you know, waiting at the restaurant, waiting uh, at the doctor's office, uh, that, that, that just tests patience. Uh, the other day I had a, just, just kind of a checkup thing, had something I was getting checked out at the doctor, and I remember going there for a one o'clock appointment, and uh, it, w- it was about 2.30. I, I got back, I, you know, they do the little triage thing where they check your blood pressure, and they check your heart rate, and they weigh you, and those sorts of things, and uh, it was 2.30 before the doctor got back there, and it was just this time of testing patients. Um, it does that when you go out to eat. And they give you that little buzzer thing. Like they kind of just warn you that there's going to be a wait. Patience. But but in life, like when it comes to waiting out big things, it seems that there's more than patience involved. It seems like it starts getting into the nitty gritty of the emotions. It starts getting into the stuff of the soul. It starts getting into uh, fear. It starts getting into some of these things that, uh, you know, really it can cause angst. It can cause turmoil. It can cause this sense of just overwhelm. And maybe you've been there and the longer you're waiting, particularly for things that are out of your control. And particularly when there's no time frame, like when you go out to eat and you say, Hey, it's, it's going to be 20 minutes. Well, well that's out of your control, but it's a very small, minimal thing. And, and you know, it's going to be about 20 minutes when, when you're waiting for something, uh, the reconciliation of a relationship, and it's out of your control. Or you're waiting for something, the return of a wayward child, and it's out of your control. You're waiting for something, uh, maybe a goal in business to hit that, and there are certain things you can do to grow the business, but, but, but let's be honest, the market and how other people lead and how other people respond, some of those things... You can increase your skill set, but a lot of those things are out of your control. Uh, You're waiting for something that's not just waiting for something that has a time frame. Like waiting for a wedding that has a time frame. Waiting for graduation from high school, time frame. Waiting to go on vacation, time bound. But the tension comes in so many times and the emotions get heavy when when number one, we don't have control over what we're waiting for, and number two, we don't have a time frame. I've got a situation right now that I'm I'm waiting on, and I was talking to two guys today that I, uh, you know, have this, uh, all the advanced guys will know this terminology. These are guys that are on my bus. Um, Many many of you would know the terminology. These are guys that I'm just doing life with, accountable to, and in some sense, feel accountable for and responsible for and responsible to. These people speak into my life. I speak into theirs. It's And I told these guys about this situation that I'm waiting on that I have no control over at this point. And I'm hoping and waiting that, well, like if I knew, if I knew the outcome, and if I, if I knew like when, you know, or either of those, like I would endure anything. Like, like there's not a cost I wouldn't pay or there's not a, a, a price I wouldn't go to. There's not a, 
There's not like a, you know, metaphorically a hill I wouldn't climb or a river I wouldn't swim or a valley I wouldn't trek through or a, a dark night of, of the soul even that, that I wouldn't endure. But, but when it comes time to waiting for something that you can't control and when it comes time to waiting for something where you, you, you hope and you think you know the outcome and you think you know, what, when, you know, it, but you don't know the time, you know, those, those variables, the, the control, the, the time, that what's the outcome going to be? Like it, what, wait, waiting becomes so, it, it becomes this place of turmoil where you, you literally have to lean into the Lord. You have to lean into the Spirit. There's this verse in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. I remember when I was uh, in college, there, there was just kind of this song that was one of those, you know, campfire type acoustic guitar driven songs that I remember singing a couple times when I would go down. Christy was on a missions beach project type thing. And I would go see her that summer before we got married and they sang this song and it was just from Isaiah 40. I'm not, I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm, I'm going to read the verse to you, but here's like the lyrics from the song were just the lyrics of this scripture of just this poem, this prophecy that Isaiah just declares over the people that he, I mean, literally would declare over us. It says, um, and I love the first verse that kind of leads into it. Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? Why do you say, and why do you say that justice, the justice due me escapes my notice of God? In other words, like there's this idea when we're waiting for something that we can't control or where there's no time bound or whether it's like we don't even know what's going to happen. Like we hope and we think and we believe what's right, but we don't, we don't even know that, that, you know, we think, gosh, God doesn't even see this. Like he doesn't know or this would resolve. He doesn't notice or... Or, or if he did, this would be handled. And he says, why, why do you say that? And then he answers, he says, have you not known, have you not heard? This is Isaiah 40, 28. Have, have, have you not known, have you not heard, or do you not know? The, the Lord is the eternal, the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary. I mean, the, the parentheses right there would be, I, I know you're tired. Like I'm maybe reflecting this back in a, audio mirror back to myself, you know, I know, I know you're tired. I know you're weary. I know your hope is gone, but, but his understanding, it's unsearchable. Like his understanding, there's this, there's this great phrase at the end of the gospel of John, where Jesus said, John says, Jesus did so many good works that he says, I I suppose like the world couldn't even (laughs) contain the books. If you put everything down that he said and did, you know, this is kind of the idea that Isaiah is getting to, like his wisdom is unsearchable. Like you can't contain it. Like his way is just bigger than your control or than your time sensitive time stamp, or his way is deeper and bigger. And he's working out something grander than just your ability to know what the outcome is. He doesn't grow tired or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is a great verse. Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and to the one without vigor. I like that word. To the one without life, to the one who's just empty. He adds might. 
even youths, even, even young people grow tired and weary and young men, they stumble and fall. Like, you know, the idea is there. I remember running a 50K last year and I, I just got so tired. And every time I was running, it was like I was just stumbling and tripping over every rock and every little crevice on the trail. And it made my legs so just jello-like because like when you run on a street, you can just kind of concentrate on moving one foot in front of the other. And I felt like when I was running on the trail, it was like my feet kept shaking and rocking and they're having to absorb impact of all these disparate ways every time I'm stepping. And Isaiah's kind of giving us that image here that like it's not just this straight path you're walking like the, the road is jagged, it's crooked, it's it's up and down and you know, and there seem to be little things on there and even the littlest things can can frustrate you. Right. And can it's so shocking. You know, I'm just thinking of my own journey, how the smallest things can just hijack your emotions for a full day. And then how the smallest thing can can be seen as a victory, you know, and and he says, like, it's hard to walk on that. But, you know, youth, young people that are strong, grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall. But 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 those who here's the key word, wait, those who wait, this translation of Scripture says, wait for Adonai, those who wait for the Lord, they will renew their strength. And he says, I, I know you're empty, but if you just wait for the Lord, easier said than done, right? I know you're hollow inside, but if you can wait, if you can hold on like something's coming, you'll renew your strength. They, you, like I'm, I'm telling myself, will soar with wings as eagles. You'll run and not grow weary. You'll walk and not faint. I'm, I'm going to, I promise you, I'm coming back to this verse. I'm going to come back. W- waiting, I've seen, is this time when, you know, you, you have to acknowledge that this is what I'm having to do, is acknowledge that some things are things that you can't do in your own strength. And furthermore, it's, it's, it's before when you look back over life and you've refused to wait on the Lord and let Him renew your strength and let Him kind of solve this thing and let Him kind of bring context to the mystery and let Him answer it in His time and in His way and let Him kind of put the period or exclamation point at the end of the sentence instead of you trying to like go ahead and shovel something in there and finish the paragraph and move on to the next chapter. It, it, it's kind of like when you do that in your own strength, that's when... You know, I look back and see that I've I've tended to mess things up. I've tended to make bigger messes. I was uh, thinking about Abraham today, just kind of as I landed on this verse. And you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 16. I'm just going to flip there. And in Genesis chapter 16, Abraham is acting on, he's... He, he's been waiting for a while um, because there was this great promise that the Lord gave him in Genesis chapter, it was, it was about Genesis chapter 12, that he says, I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to bless you and I, I'm going to make your offspring great and you know all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And then he gives him that same promise uh, later on in scripture. It's, it's just over and over this idea that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, that you're going to be the father of many nations, that you, know, you can see all that. And what, what happens is Abraham's 75 when the Lord calls him, 75 years old, and the, the child of promise isn't coming. Like he's supposed to be the father of many nations, but like he's not even had one child. And his wife Sarah is it seems to be it seems to be the context of what they're getting at in scripture is she seems to take the blame of she's the one that's barren. I, I don't know 
I don't know scientifically how they knew um, or kind of was just assumed and the blame would, would have just fallen to her. I, I, I don't know, but this, the scripture puts this, um, you know, on her is what the story, what the narrative seems to suggest is going on. And in chapter 16, it says that Abraham uh, was there and Sarah, his wife, hadn't born any children, but she had an Egyptian slave girl uh, whose, whose name was Hagar. And so Sarah says, hey, look, um, the Lord's prevented me from having children. In, in other words, we've been waiting on this a long time. And if God is sovereign, he's the one that's withholding this. So she says, go take the slave girl and perhaps I'll get a son by her. Perhaps we can have an heir that way. Now, back in that culture, I, I really think that they thought that was an acceptable way to do it. You know, you see, you see Jacob uh, and Rachel and Leah and the handmaids uh, do, do this and have multiple wives going on and multiple handmaids having kids on behalf of, of their, you know, master or masteress. You know, it, it, it seems to be, or the woman of the house, like it, it seems to be this is what they did culturally. Now, the Bible doesn't endorse that and say that that was a great idea. It, it just says this is what they did. In fact, there are a lot of things in the scripture that it doesn't say uh, was uh, an acceptable or good idea. It just kind of reports what people did. I'll show you another example in, in a moment. And so there's kind of this danger that we, you know, import all this stuff and go, oh, hey, yeah, that's just the way, that's great. That's a great way to do it. Because sometimes it's not saying that at all. Anyway, so Abraham listens to his wife, Sarah, and he goes and he sleeps with Hagar. Uh, scripture just says he went into Hagar and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, uh, her eyes, uh, in the eyes of her mistress and eyes of Sarah, she was belittled. Like it creates this tension all of a sudden. Like what they thought would solve the problem, instead of waiting on the Lord, what they thought would solve it creates this relational rift. It creates jealousy. It creates tension in the home. And so the scripture says that Sarah afflicts her. Sarah uh, punishes her. Sarah is harsh with her. And, and eventually, Hagar flees for her life. Like she runs away and, and gets out of out of the home, and then the angel of the Lord sends her back, and the, you know, and then she's out, and there's all this tension that happens in that moment, and, and then long term, like even now, we still deal with the tension of that decision where Abraham took this in his own hands instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of waiting, you know, you've got this promise, you've got this word that this is going to happen, that this um, that this child, this heir will be born to you, that, that you won't be barren, that you're going to have an offspring, that you're going to have the father of many nations. Like, like he takes that on himself to fix and in taking it on himself to fix, he makes it worse. And, and, you know, honestly, he eventually has Isaac, the, quote, child of promise. Today, Jewish people trace their lineage to Isaac, and Arabs trace their lineage to Ishmael, that firstborn son that was born of Hagar. And, and th- this is a lot of the tension still in the Middle East today, is Arabs claiming the promised land because it was gifted to Abraham by, by God, and Ishmael is is the firstborn son. Um, Jews claiming that promised land because it was given by Abraham to Isaac, who was the secondborn son, and this tension is still going on. And 
you know, I, I wonder, I look back in my life, how many problems have been created long term, not, 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 not thousands of years long term, but even in my own life, decades long term, created by just not waiting on the Lord, by jumping ahead. Look back in churches where I've worked and nonprofits where I've worked, look back in businesses and other opportunities where instead of just pausing, instead of just living in that tension of God, do you not see? Like, do, do you not know what's happening here? Do, like, like, instead of living in that tension, actually jumping ahead of Him and doing something, and doing something in my own strength that caused more tension in that moment, like the issue with Hagar and Sarah. And not just more tension in the moment, but tension and problems and issues that became long-term, lasting ramifications, consequences to be dealt with. Um, Even creating financial issues and relational rifts and trust issues and uh, things long-term from decisions made decades ago, handled poorly. Well, this, this wasn't the only time Abraham did this. In fact, here's what's interesting is if you look in uh, the beginning of his story, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 is where God calls him. And God, God tells him, God says, um, get going out of your land. He calls him out of Babylon. Like when everybody's scattering from Babylon with the Tower of Babel and everybody scatters, Abraham is caught up in that story. He's one of the people scattering and the story kind of zeroes in on one person that's being dispersed across the known world at the time. And one of those people is Abraham and God calls that one guy. It's this amazing story. And in Genesis chapter 12, 1, God calls him and says, get going from your land, from your relatives, from your father's house, go to the land I will show you. And so the plan is Abraham is just going to follow God one step of the way. And as he does, you know, God's going to make his name great so that he'll be a blessing. He's going to, um, and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. Like we, we know those things came true, but in the moment, like he's, he's kind of just on the cusp of that. And, and he's just at, he's 75 and he's just getting that promise. Like he's lived this whole, like at that time it would be this long life and God calls him and says, just follow me wherever I lead you. Now, the first instance of Abraham kind of taking things into his own hands is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. It's just 10 verses later. And it says that this happened. Now, now there was famine in the land. So because of that, not not because the Lord told him to, but because there was famine in the land. In, In other words, he looks at the external circumstance. Because there's famine in the land. In other words, instead of waiting, hey, God, um, do you not know, do you not see there's no food here? Uh, it hasn't rained. I, I left I left, I left. left Babylon. I, I left where you told me to leave, and I've, I've pursued you wholeheartedly, and I've left all things. And now he's looking at the externals, and it says because there's famine in the land, he goes down to Egypt to live as an outsider there because the famine was severe in the land he was. And, and now, like I want you to catch, like that was his decision, not God's direction. That was an instance of not just pause, wait, what do we do? So here's, here's what happens. A couple things. Um, f- first of all, Later on in the story, later on in Genesis chapter 26, we, we learn that um, here's what could have happened that didn't happen. 
Uh, Isaac, his his second son, okay, the firstborn of Sarah, the child of promise. Uh, Isaac, uh, who's born to Abraham when he's 100, by the way. Isaac was in a land... Um, there's famine in the land, and Isaiah in Genesis chapter 26 in Isaac's story, there's famine in the land. Uh, aside from the previous famine that happened in Abraham's days, and it says this, verse 12 of that same chapter, Isaac sowed in that land where there was a famine. By the way, Isaac sowed in that land, and in that year reaped one hundredfold. It makes me wonder about the possibility. Like, what if Abraham had just waited? Hey, Father God, what to do? What do I do here? Okay, yeah, you want me to do something nonsensical? Like, you want me to wait, plant the seed in a famine? There, there's no water. Like, we, we don't have irrigation systems. We don't have like we're in the middle of uh, of Canaan. Like, you know, it's got to be the rainy season, and it's got to it's got to rain, and it's not raining. Like, that's the definition of famine: is it's not raining. And, but you want me to plant seed anyway? And I mean, you think about it, like farmers now would, I don't know what the average crop out is. I, I don't think it's a hundredfold though. Like I think that's a pretty significant amount, even like on a good rainy season on a great year. And so it seems to be like in the famine, Isaac exponentially did more than, more than what would be expected on a great year. And so you wonder if Abraham had, had just stopped if you just hit that pause button, like what, what would the Lord have done? It makes me think, you know, in seasons right now, I'm waiting. Like, don't rush ahead. Yeah, yeah, when the Lord says step, step, when he says jump, jump, when he says move to the left, move to the left, when it's, you know, kind of like the, the tabernacle version um, that you see in the book of Exodus, like when the cloud lifts, like follow the cloud. But if his presence doesn't go, don't go. If his presence says stay and plant seed, even though it doesn't make sense, you stay, you plant seed. It makes it makes me pause, think, you know, reflect, and think, gosh, you know, if, if he if he could do this thousands of years ago, you know, he's he's not changed, right? Um, Abraham goes down to Egypt, and um, two two problems happen. Um, it says that right as he's about to go into Egypt, he looks at Sarah and he says, hey, I, I know that you're attractive. So when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, hey, this is his wife and they'll kill me, but then they'll let you live. Like basically they would take her and they would kill him to get her. So say that you're my sister, I'll be treated well for you, and then my life will be spared because of you. So in other words, lie for me. And so when Abraham comes to Egyptians, they, they did see that she's beautiful and Pharaoh's official saw her and they rave about her to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh takes her into his harem. Now, the, the outcome of this story is, is that Abraham is, um, well, Pharaoh, Pharaoh gives him, he, he treats him well. He gives him, you know, sheep and cattle and donkeys and uh, slaves and, and money and camels. And then plagues strike Pharaoh's house. I, I've talked about this before on the podcast. And God basically protects Sarah from anything happening to her. And then she's restored to him. Um, and, and then, you know, oddly enough, if you read the story in uh, Genesis chapter 20, Abraham does this again. Like he, he does this two times. And, and, and I would say in no way does the scripture endorse this behavior and say that this was an honorable thing that he did. You, you know, people well-intended look at, at the scripture and they, 
you know, you, you try to whitewash it sometimes. And, and what the scripture does, it, it gives us this honest tension of all these horrible things, these perverse things, these deceitful, wrong, dishonorable to his wife, to his lady that he, that he does. And, you know, by God's grace, God redeems it twice. But, but here's the bad thing that happens with that, even worse than, than the trust and the relational issues that probably come up for that we don't even know about, that we don't even read about, is later on Isaac mimics this behavior. We read in, in Genesis chapter 26 that Isaac actually does the same thing that his father had done, and he passes his sister, or he passes his wife off as his sister. He, he passes, passes his wife off. And so it becomes this generational thing that passes down. Why? Because he didn't wait. And so many times when we rush ahead in our own strength of the Lord, I've seen when we rush ahead, like you make a mistake, and then instead of just stopping, pausing, and then retracing your steps, you, you end up just making another mistake. And, and then instead of stopping, pausing, and retracing your steps, you just make another mistake. And sometimes the best thing that you can do is just, is just stop, is not to send off an angry text message, is not to have a verbal altercation is not to have a confrontation is not to act in haste is not not to belittle someone is not to disparage gossip rumor monger get angry jealous is not to spend more go more it's it's just it's just to pause and rest, you know, especially when your emotions are getting out of whack. You remember in the last episode, I said that sometimes when our emotions get up and start twisting and turning and going all over, like sometimes it's just an indicator, like like, like with toddlers, you know, that that you just need to pause and rest. You just need to pause and wait. Just need to pause and stop because it was in the Sabbath, remember? And it was in the waiting and in the deep sleep, as I talked about in the last episode, that that the greatest work that Adam even participated in was done. Yeah? And so this happens in Egypt. And by the way, remember, Genesis chapter 16 tells us that Hagar, uh, she was an Egyptian slave girl. And I, I just wonder, you know, I, I wonder, I'm like, you know, Pharaoh gave Abraham Egyptian slaves in this whole transaction when he took Sarah, you know, into her, the harem. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, what was, was Hagar, was she one of the fruits of that? Like, is she something that kind of attached herself to Abraham and Sarah in that whole transaction, that whole process there? You, you know, is this another example of something that... Uh, would not have even been a possibility had we not made that first error. You know, and I I don't know. I, I, have, I have no idea. I, I do know that when you get into the New Testament, you, you get into this book of Galatians, and Galatians starts likening and pitting kind of what happened with Sarah and what happened with Hagar and and Paul's talking there, and he says, "Hey, um, listen. Let, let me let me remind you of of the grace in which you stand, and let re, let me remind you that the, the gospel is not something that you run ahead and do. That that the gospel and that the life you're called to live is a life where you wait on the Lord. 
And, and he, he just likens it in Genesis chapter 4, 22. He says, it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. And he talks about the law and the rules and the doing and striving to be accepted by God and, and the efforts that we expend. He, he talks about that as kind of being endemic of Ishmael, of, of being stuff that we do in our own strength. Whereas he, he likens Isaac, the, the one that was the miracle that God did because uh, Sarah wasn't supposed to be able to have children. It, the scripture says she was barren. It was a miracle that happened. And, and you know, and by the way, Abraham, honestly, you know, he's, he's a hundred. He's 75 when God calls him. He, he shouldn't have been able to have kids either. Like both ways, it was, it was miracle. And Paul says that um, one, one son by the slave woman was born naturally, meaning in man's strength. The other, the son of the free woman, was born through the promise. These things are allegorical, he says, one being the law, Mount Sinai, what you can do, your performance, your efforts, which can never attain the beauty, the glory that God's called you to. And the other one, the thing that God does, but when he does it, when he does it, I'm learning more and more. He does it on his timetable, not mine, not not yours. When he does it, you know, you look at this story and Abraham waited 25 years. Isaac is born when he's 100 years old. He's called when he's 75. And it seems to me that this waiting is... It is the way things seem to be done all throughout the Bible. Like you don't, you, you don't get things microwaved in Scripture. It's slow cooked. Like it's not instapot. It is, it is open flame, long term, slow hickory smoked roast. It it makes sense to me. The the first. The first command that Jesus gave when he was ascending up to heaven after the resurrection, he's with the disciples, and we read Paul says that he appeared to over 500 people during that time. And we get into Acts 1, he's ascending up to the Father. Luke's writing the story right there. And Luke says that um, while, while he's standing there with the disciples, he commands them. It's, it, it's a command. Like it is, it, is a, it is an instruction. It is an imperative. He says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait, 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 wait for what the Father promised. He's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise which you've heard from me. In verse 5, John baptized you with water. You will be baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so what happens is we read that this group of people, it they go to the upper room. They go to this place, probably where they had the Last Supper, and they start studying the Scripture, and they start doing what anybody would have done, done preparing for the day of Pentecost. The Pentecost was a time of celebration where the children of Israel, historically for thousands of years, had celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And when they did that, they would get deep into the Scripture, and they would read about the presence of God coming upon them at Mount Sinai when He showed up with the wind and the fire, and He was near them, and He claimed them 
them as his people. He had freed them from slavery. And in some sense, like this is what's happening right here. Like they've just been freed from sin by Jesus on the cross by the lamb, like which was Passover looks at all that. And 10 days later, you know, there, there are 50 days later, you know, that's how long it took them to get from um, the, the uh, Exodus all the way to the Mount Sinai, 50 days. That's what it takes from Jesus uh, dying on the cross. And then until we get to Pentecost, so that same time frame, like they're in the upper room and they're studying and they're praying and they're, here's the word, they're waiting. They're not off trying to start a church. They're not off trying to do ministry. They're not off doing this stuff in their own strength. They're waiting. Now, here's, here, here's what's interesting is Paul says Jesus appeared to 500 of them, but when we get into the upper room and we get this snapshot in Acts 115, it says there's 120, meaning, meaning 75, 80% of the people, they, they, they didn't wait. Most of them, the majority, they, they ran off and did their thing. They went off and did it in their own strength. Like they couldn't live in the tension of, hey, God has said that this is going to happen. God's given me a word. And I, I think it's true, but is, does he even see? Like, like does, does he even know what's going on? Like, is he, is he clued into my little private corner of the universe? And there's so much overwhelm and so much that's just rocking my heart right now. Like, is he... Is he tuned in? Like, is is he going to clue into this? And just 120 wait, and and they wait for uh, ten days. You know, I read through other places in the scripture. There's a story about Daniel where he's praying and he's wanting to see this move the Lord, and then finally the messenger, the angelic messenger, comes to him. And the messenger comes and says, hey, I left and started coming to you the first day that your prayer went up, but I was detained by the prince of Persia. Meaning there's probably some spiritual warfare going on. He goes, I was detained for 21 days. Like he waited 21 days persisting, praying over and over and over, 21 days straight for an answer that was dispatched on day one. Like God had seen. It's just something bigger transpiring. Um, read like Esther, you know, we know her story. Esther in the Old Testament, this beautiful woman who um, became the queen. She was a Jewish girl who became the queen and was able to save the entire nation from destruction. You know, they still celebrate the Feast of Purim, which is the day that they, they were effectively saved as a nation. And, you know, she had to wait to go to have that night with the king. And the scripture says in Esther 2.12, like that that was her destiny is, is to get before the king and to get in his presence. And the scripture says, though, like that she waited for a year, six months of treatments and preparation with one degree of treatment and preparation, and then six months more of another type of purification treatment that was cultural to them, but it was, it was a wait a year for that one moment. You read about Joseph, you know, in, in the prison, tossed in prison for something he didn't do, and it looks like it's going to go his way, and then it doesn't, and then it looks like it's going to go great, and it doesn't. Thirteen years later, he's restored. And not, not just not just restored, but like over restored, like elevated up to number two in all of Israel. Like he only reports to Pharaoh, and even Pharaoh's kind of deferred to his authority. 
You know, read things like Jesus, unknown, unseen for 30 years. So unknown and so unseen that when he burst onto the scene at the age of 30 to be baptized, that even his cousin John, who leapt in the womb when Jesus was in Mary's womb and when John the Baptist was in Elizabeth's womb, you know, he somehow recognized him in the womb and just leapt is what the scripture says. But when he's 30, Jesus is so unknown, so much in this waiting stage that John in John chapter one says, I I wouldn't have known who he was except for the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And the Father told me that the one on whom you see the Spirit descending like a dove, that's the one. That's him. That dove is what moved Jesus from obscurity in the mind of John the Baptist. He had been waiting all that time. You remember even Jesus' first sermon. Like people couldn't take it that he was the Messiah. They're like, wait, is this like this is the carpenter? This is the son of Mary and the son of Joseph and his brothers, James, and like they're they're all here. Like this is this is just a normal everyday guy. And you wonder, you know, like scripture says, I, I referenced this a couple episodes ago that we don't have a high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in every single way we are, but was without sin. And you look at this and think, goodness, like Jesus waited, he endured. And I wonder how many times did he just think like, why don't I just, I can do this in my strength. Like I, I've got the skill set now I can go teach. I've got the, I, I know how to do the healing thing. Like God, the father will back me up because it, we read from when he was little, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And yet for 30 years, he's silent. He's waiting. And then even after that one moment of the baptism, it's, it's like you think this is it. This is, we're here, we've arrived. And then it's this 40 days in the wilderness of more wait. There's other instances in the Bible too. You know, you you read about Joshua and Caleb who spied out the promised land and in Numbers 13 and 14, and they say, we can take it. God's going to give it to us. And then everybody else says, no, like he, he can't. There's giants in the land. And we, we know the story that those giants have been quaking in fear of them is what we read later in Joshua chapter two and in Joshua chapter six, because Rahab says, you know, since you came through the Red Sea, we've been quaking in fear for 40 years. But Joshua and Caleb have to wander the wilderness for that 40 years because everybody said, no, we can't take it. And they all died in the wilderness in Joshua and Caleb just wait as that generation dies off. Hundreds of thousands of funerals, of turmoil, of trauma, of watching their friends, of, of watching people that they knew, that they'd grown up with, people they loved, trusted, they had, had, had gone to temple with, they, they had gone to tabernacle rather, rather with, die while they waited. You know, Scripture says that Noah had three sons when he was 500, and then it says that when he was 600, the Lord said, get into the ark. How, how long did it take him to build the ark? I don't know. I know his sons helped him is what scripture infers. You know, did they start helping him when they were 15, 16, 13, 12, you know, 20? I, I don't know. How long did it take to build the ark? You know, if the boys started helping when they're 13, 15, you know, whatever, like my boys helped me in the yard, you know, I mean, how long did it take? Uh, 70, 80 years, 85 years, you know? 
some, something like that, of, of this promise that it's going to rain. It had never happened before. It's going to rain. It had never happened. And we just kind of endure and work on this in public while people see and they don't understand what we're doing. Yet, we wait. Um, you can't microwave it can you like it's just this time when you slow cooks when patience grows when trust hopefully grows when and there's lots of reflecting, lots of soul searching, lots of the stripping away of the externals of the things that you thought were important that in the process of waiting for, waiting to climb out of debt, what wait, waiting, waiting for the relationship to be healed, what waiting, waiting for the medical treatments to be done and complete, what waiting for the word back from the physician or healer waiting for the answer to the prayer request, waiting for the, not just the time bound things, because those are hard enough, but I'm really referring to the things where you don't really have an answer for when is this going to resolve? When is this going to happen? And like Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick, but but a promise fulfilled or a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. It's it's like in this waiting time, sometimes you feel so sick. Maybe even sick physically, sick emotionally, sick spiritually. You know, and that, that's the tension, right? That That we trust that the Lord's got it. And yet, as Isaiah says, like we're sitting here going, wait, 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 does God not see? Does God not, does he not know? And Isaiah says, he goes, no, no, no. Have you not heard? It's just in Isaiah 40. Have you not heard? Have you not known the Lord's eternal God? Like he's been around. He's not new on the block. He's got a lot of experience doing this. Like he's seen your situation before. He's seen my situation before. Like this isn't new. Maybe maybe new to us, but not new to him. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Like everything was created by him. He doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary. You're tired. You're weary. He doesn't grow tired. His understanding isn't... It's unsearchable. Like he, he knows all things. He sees all things. And he's not running out of strength. And he's not running out of endurance. Like there's not a point where his ability is going to fail. You, youth and young people grow tired. Young men grow faint. They give up. But, and it's just this great contrast. The one who waits on Adonai will renew his, her, your, my strength. You'll soar up with wings like eagles. You'll soar up with wings like eagles. I, I love it because if you've ever seen an eagle fly, it's like they don't flap aggressively. They just seem to float. 
and yet there's there's something like there there's somehow where they're scientifically engineered. You know what? Which would be like God engineered. Like you know, all science is His stuff, right? He created all things. So science is just explaining kind of in natural ways, like how He organized everything to work and how He engineered it to work. There's something with an eagle's wings that just works where they're so aerodynamic, they just lift. And they just catch thermals and they just catch up currents and they just go higher and higher. And it seems to be like they have to try harder to come down than to go up. And Isaiah says, like, if you'll wait, like if you won't strive, you know, it it had to be so hard for Abraham to pack up so much energy to pack up and leave from where he was to go to Egypt and so much energy to give off his wife as his sister and the wondering and the turmoil of what's happening to her. And is she being taken? And and I, I just imagine the angst and everything, the anxiety that was going on and the anxiety of of having and going and being with another woman. And then the anxiety of, oh, now she's pregnant. You know, all this. And I wonder, like, would it have been easier just to wait? I don't know. You know, sometimes we think the payoff would be better if we if we just perform, which is why we do it, right? Like, it'll be a better payoff if we just perform. And here Isaiah said, no, 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 no. And I'm reminding myself, if you'll wait, if you'll wait, you'll go higher. And you'll go higher, easier. And it's going to be like you're going to be able to run and not grow weary. Yeah, youths grow weary, but you're going to be able to run and not grow weary. It won't be like that 50K trail where at the end it was so hard. And it was so mentally exhausting. And every step, you're just kind of shaking and trying to keep it up. You'll run and not grow weary. You'll walk and not faint. I close with this, you know. John chapter 11, Lazarus gets sick. And the scripture says that when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, because of that, he waited. And then he went a few days later and Lazarus had died. And if Jesus had gone soon, if there was no four-day wait, Lazarus would have gotten well. It, it would have been a miracle. It would have been a moment. But when he waited, resurrection occurs. And I wonder, you know, for me, for you, if this waiting is, if it's something being buried, if it's the waiting it out, if it's this time period where you're waiting and God sees and He's doing something in you so that He can refine something for you so that later He can do something immeasurably more through you. That's um, that's what I got for today for you. For those of you who are waiting, uh, I'm waiting with you and walking it with you and questioning it with you and simultaneously leading into the promises of the Lord with you and for you. And may as you wait and as I wait, may the Lord 
bless us, keep us. May His face of favor shine upon us. May we see, sense, and feel the upcurrent of the wind of the Spirit as we go higher. Even as we don't understand, may we run and not grow weary. May we walk and not faint. May we realize that He's not microwaving it. He's cooking something long-term to last that He promises will be beautiful in its time. Grace, peace, shalom.